We've been looking at the book of Ezra for some time now. If you've got a Bible with you, this is where you'll find it. This is where you'll find... Oh, dear. You'll find it fairly near the end of the Old Testament, anyway, at the end of the bit of the Old Testament before the prophets. Um, And there is, of course, no shame in looking it up in the contents page of your Bible, if you have a dead tree one. If you use an electronic one, it's probably a bit easier to find. So we've seen so far that after um, 70 years in exile in Babylon, God's people were allowed back to their own land, being sent by King Cyrus, along with all the gold that had been taken from the temple by Nebuchadnezzar at the time when they first went into exile. And at first, everything went swimmingly, as we saw in chapter 2. Oh, you've got it, right. Um, um. So, at first everything went swimmingly, as we saw in chapter 2. They returned to the land in accordance with prophecies by Jeremiah and Isaiah. Uh, they laid the foundations of the temple... The cycle of worship resumed on the site of the temple. Don't worry, Jerry, if not, we'll, we can manage without it. The Apostle Paul managed to preach without um, PowerPoint. Uh, and there was a great national celebration. So did Jesus. Um, but then, as we saw very briefly a couple of weeks ago, the opposition started, didn't it? Things started going wrong. Um, the enemies, or well, their enemies, tried to have the work stopped. Oh, well done. Their enemies tried to have the work stopped. Makes it all worthwhile preparing that slide now. Um, their enemies tried to have the work stopped, and the opposition, including that to rebuilding the walls of the city, goes on for about 70 years, which we're inclined to forget. It's not just a flash in the pan. We looked a bit at the nature of that opposition and we saw from chapter 4 that, first of all, opposition often arises right in the middle of success when things are going great. Um, We saw how people came along posing as friends but were really their enemies. They were false friends. We saw how they used fear, they used discouragement and they used frustrating plans to, um, to stop the rebuilding work going on. And we also considered briefly um, that we should expect God's work to be opposed. None of the great heroes of Scripture or any of the great heroes of the faith in history met with unqualified success. Um, wherever you look in Scripture, they didn't meet with unqualified success our evangelical idea that if everything's going well, it means God's blessing us, is therefore flawed. It might also mean that we aren't really doing God's work. So there's been a progression so far, as we saw on that previous slide. Today I'm going to look at chapters 5 and 6 and at what comes next. Because it's a long passage, I'm not going to read all of it. Um, But I will read out some sections which I will put, or Jerry will put, on the screen as we go through. 
Do you want me to try using this? Then I can. So first of all, I'm going to look at Ezra 5, verses 1 to 6, which I think are on a slide, Jerry. It says this. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Ido, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Jozadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At that time, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozani and their associates went to them and asked, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? And they also asked, and what are the names of those who are constructing this building? But the, God, the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. This is a copy of the letter that Tatnai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozani and their associates, the officials of Trans-Euphrates, sent to King Darius. And there's then an exchange of letters between Tatnai, Tatnai, the re regional governor, and King Darius, which results in the following letter coming from Darius, which we see in chapter 6 and verses 6 to 12. Now then, Tatnai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozani and you and, and you other officials of that province, stay away from there. Don't interfere with the work on this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I hereby decree what you're to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of this house of God. Their expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of Trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven and wheat, salt, wine and olive oil as requested by the priests in Jerusalem must be given them daily without fail so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. Furthermore, I decree that if anyone defies this edict, a beam is to be pulled from their house and they are to be impaled on it. And for this crime, their house is to be made a pile of rubble. May God, who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who lift a hand to change this decree or to destroy this temple in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. And then in verses 13 to 22, we read this. Then, because of the decree King Darius had sent, Tatanai, king, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozani and their associates carried it out with diligence. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the, the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Ido. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of this house of God, they offered a hundred bulls 200 rams, 400 male lambs, 
and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. Not a good day for vegans. And they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem, according to what's written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. The priests and Levites had purified themselves and were all ceremonially clean. The Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, for their relatives, the priests, and for themselves. So the Israelites, who had returned from the exile, ate it, together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors, in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. For seven days they celebrated with joy the festival of unleavened bread, because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria, so that he assisted them in the work on the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. Well, that's one of those passages in the Old Testament that you read and you think, what on earth? Um, Well, I do, I don't know about you, you might all have it buttoned down. So, in this passage, a number of things happen. First of all, there is a further challenge. Remember last time we saw this challenge, didn't we, with the fear, the discouragement, and the frustration of their plans. This time, it's the government that comes along and starts weighing in. Tatanai, or Tatanai, by the way, I don't know if I pronounced those names rightly, that the secret with Bible names is to sound really confident when you read them, and people think you know. Um, if you were to do the proper Hebrew pronunciation, it would be completely different. So don't let anyone worry you about that. So Tatanai, the governor of the king, un, or the governor of the region under King Darius, comes down to Jerusalem with his colleague, or his sidekick, Shethar Bozani, and he asks them, on what authority are you proceeding with rebuilding this temple? Where's the paperwork? And in a typical bureaucratic manner, he takes their names. Now, I don't know about you, when I was at school, the terrified, in our school, the masters didn't bother learning your name. Um, some of them didn't even bother teaching you, really, but that's a whole different subject. Um, but if you did anything wrong, the response would be, you boy, what's your name? And at that moment, this sort of horrible feeling went right through you. Did anyone else have that experience? Um, but just this thing of giving your name is... It's an, it, it's a, it's an, um, it's an exercising of power, isn't it? Tell me your name. Once I know your name, I can do all sorts of horrible things to you. (laughs) Exactly. Well, we would sometimes, if it was a master we didn't know, we'd give him someone else's name. Um, But it usually rebounded on you if you got recognized in the playground. But I was in a boys' school. There were 700 of us, and our masters were so... um, I won't tell you what they were so, but they didn't actually recognize you five minutes after they'd spoken to you. Um... Uh, So anyway, you have this thing where they come down, ask for the paperwork, take their names, um, and then there's an exchange of letters with the king, where the king gets people to go through the old archives from Darius, which was quite a few years earlier, as we saw on one of the slides that flicked past up there. The archives are checked, and the people of Israel are vindicated. Once they've checked the files, 
They come back, they don't say, oh, can't find the file, which if it were in my study would probably be the case, but they, they, they check them, they come back and they are vindicated. They come back and say, yes, they certainly were, King Cyrus did say so. Uh, and not only are they allowed to carry on with the rebuilding of the temple, but the king orders that it be funded from the treasury. He's going to pay for it out of the income tax. And he expressly forbids everybody to interfere with the building of the temple. And it won't be until much later in the reign of Artaxerxes that further opposition to the building arises. And that's opposition to the building of the walls, not the building of the temple. And then the next thing that happens is a couple of guys who get mentioned in here. Um, there's Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo. Um, get mentioned two or three times in this passage. These are prophets, and they get involved with chivying up the people to get the work done. Um, They come onto the scene, they stir them up to get on with the work of building, and God is revealed as the actor behind all that's happening. In verse chapter 5 and verse 5, it says this, it says, But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. And then again in the second half of verse 14 in chapter 6, it says, So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Iddo. They finished building the temple according to the command of God, sorry, of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. So the restoration of the nation of Israel moves on a couple more stages from what we saw in that kind of ladder or steps steps that I showed you earlier. Firstly, the temple is completed and dedicated. And then secondly, the Passover is reinstated. They celebrate the Passover. And there's also a sense throughout that although restoration is happening, things are not quite as they were formerly. In Haggai chapter 1, so they've referred in here to Haggai, I'm just going to read you a bit from Haggai. It says this, it says, Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says, Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. I think that kind of touches on what Phil shared earlier, really. This sense that, though you've got it, you haven't got it. Uh, This passage for us, for Sue and for me, this passage is, um, is a slightly tricky one. We, in our previous church, our first house, the walls weren't straight, um, And we decided that rather than trying to make these walls straight, what we would do was to cover them with panelling. So one Saturday, we we had all this wood panelling, and we put it all up, didn't we? Um, And it actually looked quite good. I mean, I'm not brilliant at DIY, but it looked pretty good. It certainly looked better than the uneven walls that we'd had before. On the Sunday, our church leader decided to preach from this passage about living in panelled houses. 
and we just sat in the seats going like this. Um, so, Haggai, who's one of the prophets speaking into their situation, also speaks into this sense of things not being as they should be. And we saw when we looked at chapter 3, didn't we, how the, what happened with the older people when they saw the temple? They wept. They were disappointed, weren't they? It's nothing like what we were expecting or what we remember. Um, they were disappointed when they saw the foundations. And this temple, unlike the tabernacle and Solomon's temple, is never filled with the glory of God, as far as we know. If you remember when the tabernacle was dedicated, what happened? The glory of God came down like a cloud and filled it, didn't it? So guess what happened when Solomon's temple was dedicated? The glory of God came down and filled it like a cloud. When this temple is dedicated, we get none of that. It's a very joyful occasion, great day, but the glory of God never fills this temple. So although we see progression throughout this book of Ezra, we're also left with a sense at the end of the Old Testament narrative that something is lacking, something is missing. It's not quite right. So what... No, I think there is another... Yes, there is a, another slide. So what do we... So what we see in this passage, there are another couple of stages get added to this development of the restoration. Here we are. Um, so we've got another few steps added to our staircase here in that opposition is overcome, the temple is completed, and the Passover is resumed. Um, there is this progression, but it's not quite, it's not a sort of full restoration that happens. So what do we learn from all of this. Well, and again, this comes back to some of the things that various people brought this morning. First of all, that God is behind what happens. The, these passages, the two chapters we've read here, make it very explicit that actually, for the first time in Ezra, God is revealed as the actor behind all of this. God is behind what happens. We need to find him in it. Um, Ultimately, it is in Jesus that the temple worship finds its fulfillment. That, I think, is why we're left at the end of the Old Testament with this slightly half-baked temple worship going on. God is behind what happens. We need to find him in it. And last Sunday morning, I think we did somehow find God in all that was happening there. Although it was tragic and desperately sad, somehow... We, as a body, found God in that, in the way that people prayed, the way that we watched out for one another after it. So the first thing I think we learn from this passage is that God is behind what happens. He is the actor, or the agent, behind history. I struggle to believe that at times at the moment, but um, without revealing my politics. Um, but God knows what he's doing here. I just wish he'd tell us. The second thing that we come across is the primacy of worship. 
which we've talked about before, but it just keeps coming back throughout this whole book of Ezra. And I don't mean the primacy of singing um, Matt Redman's songs. I mean the primacy of worship, the primacy of coming before God in the way that he's ordained to give him glory and to exalt his name. Priorities given to restoring worship over restoration of security by building a wall. And in a hostile place, that's pretty incredible, really, when you think about it. That actually, they didn't, first of all, try and deal with their personal security and safety, or their leaders didn't, but they sought to rebuild um, the place of worship, to to restart worship. Um, I think we can easily forget the importance of the gathered people of God. It's public worship and the restoration of Passover that are stored right at the be- restored right at the beginning, not private worship. You know, it's not all about individual people's quiet times. Uh, whether they had quiet times in ancient Israel, I do not know. Um, the phrase doesn't actually occur in the Bible, by the way. So, but that's a whole different topic. Um, but it's corporate worship, the gathered people of God, that kind of worship that is restored first of all. We'll see later on, um, if we ever get there, other aspects that get restored. And then we also see something in, this, in, in this, the, these two chapters about the role of the prophetic. Haggai and Zechariah are sent by God to call Israel back to fulfill their calling to fulfill what God has called them to do. We often think of the prophetic as being there to encourage us and give us nice thoughts and so on and show that God really cares for us. And that's part of what the prophetic does. But the role of the prophetic in the Old Testament at least, and I, I think it carries through into the New Testament, is to call God's people back to what he has called them to to restore God's people, to chivy them along, to do what it is that God called them and commanded to do. You only have to read the Old Testament prophetic books to see that. There are other roles of the prophetic, but this one in particular. I have to confess, I find Haggai's book a lot easier to read than Zechariah's. Um, One of these days, when I've got some time, I will probably... um, really study the book of Zechariah, but I'm afraid I can't make head or tail of most of it. Whereas Haggai's is very clear that he's calling these people back to restore the temple. Um, Very clear that he's saying to them, you know, what are you doing putting in... I'm going to get someone condemned here, however I do this, so just forgive me. But what are you doing putting in nice conservatories and we're about to have our guttering done. Nice gutters and all of that sort of stuff, when God's temple lies in ruins. Haggai is trying to call them back to what God has placed them in the land for. So we see something about the role of the prophetic here, and it's not what you and I will often think of as being the prophetic. And then we also see something here of a... As I read Ezra, to me there is a sense of holy dissatisfaction underlying everything we read in it. 
there's a sense in this book and in Haggai that even though they're back in the land and even though great progress is being made in restoring worship and later the place of God's word and the holiness of God's people, something is missing. And that something will never be fulfilled until Jesus appears on the scene several hundred years later. That's what I think is the missing link in this narrative. The Old Testament narrative ends on a rather disappointed tone, I think. Um, Some might dispute that with me, but to me that's how it is. The glory of God never comes into this temple. Um, It's not quite right. It's, It's there, but it's not there. And as Haggai says, you know, you, you fill your purses, but they've got holes in them. Everything kind of melts away. And it's into this sense of dissatisfaction that the prophets speak here. And it's into this sense of this is not quite fulfilled. This temple that's been rebuilt is not actually the ultimate purpose of what God wants to do. This temple for Israel is not the last word. Um, This restoration of worship isn't the last word. That will only come in Jesus. Now, I believe that Jesus is himself the temple. That's why I will not give a single penny to try and rebuild a temple in Jerusalem. But Jesus is the one who fulfills that. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that we see in the Old Testament. When Jesus comes, he re, reconstitutes the people of God around himself. And there's imagery of that where you know, he has 12 disciples, like the 12 tribes and so on. I won't get into all of that now. But actually, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all that we see in here. Um, and if we start worrying about rebuilding temples, we miss what God is wanting to do in our age. But God, what I learned from this passage is that God is behind everything that happens in my life, in our life as a church, and we need to find him in it. Um, And sometimes it's difficult. Um, I'm not making light of that. This is not a trite. Last week we looked at Habakkuk, didn't we? Um, And how Habakkuk got to that point of being able to say, though the fig tree doesn't blossom and there's no fruit on the vine, The way he got there was by twice going through a cycle of saying to God, this is just not right. And God replies, and Habakkuk says, no, I'm sorry, this is not right. And it's only when he's been through that and worked it through before God and wrestled with God that he actually gets to the point where he says, though the fig tree doesn't blossom and there's no fruit on the vine, yet will I praise the Lord, worship the Lord. I think we see it here. We have to recognize that God is behind what is happening and we have to somehow seek him and find him in it. We almost want to say God's behind everything that we, we go through and we have to seek him in it, in it. Um, those of you who come from London will get that. Um, <laughs> the second thing I learn is the primacy of worship. Priority is given to worship we see something of the role of the prophetic, that actually the role of the prophet is not just 
to bring supernatural words that surprise and amaze everybody, but the role of the prophet is actually to call God's people up to be obedient and to serve him and to fulfill their calling. And this sense that actually we're still waiting for something. Even now, we're still waiting. We live now in a now and not yet age where the kingdom of God has come, but has yet to come in all its fullness. Um, I won't get into that. There's a whole diatribe I could go into on that, but I'm not going to. We just sort of recognize in this passage, there's a sense here that, yes, it's great, It's wonderful. There's great joy at this restoration. But there's also a sense that it's not quite our ultimate hope. It's not quite what we're really looking for. And what you and I are looking for now is the return of Jesus in all his glory to rule and to reign on this earth. Well, I am anyway. Um... You know, we are looking for that day when Jesus returns, the trumpet sounds, and he comes to rule and to reign in all his glory. And whilst we occasionally have fantastic things that happen, they're a bit like this temple. They're great, they're lovely, but they're not the real deal. They're not the full, um, the full-orbed fulfillment of all that we are looking and hoping for. We are living for a day when... Jesus returns in his glory to rule and to reign. Um, And that is is the ultimate fulfillment. What we see sometimes is great and it's wonderful. And I'm not belittling anything. Um, I love it when I get a little answer to prayer. I love it when there's just that little sign that God is moving. But they are tokens of what we are really ultimately looking for. So that's what I see from those two chapters. Opposition is overcome here. God's people are vindicated. And the narrative, the story of God moves on. It is continually moving on. And God's narrative and story is continually moving on today. So shall I pray, Alistair, and then I'll hand back to you. Father, we want to thank you for this encouragement that we see here, that... Despite years of opposition, your people have indicated that despite all the difficulties, they're not only vindicated, but their enemies have to pay for the work to be done. And Lord, we want to pray for your work in this town, this church, and our lives, and this nation. Father, we do want to pray that your people will ultimately be vindicated. Lord, we're not good at waiting. Um, These people eventually had to wait 70 years for the fullness of their vindication. But, Father, we want to be men and women who are faithful in our waiting and faithful in our resisting that opposition as well. Lord, we, we do want to pray for... for that day. We look forward to that glorious day when you return to this earth. Lord, we so often forget it and get wrapped up in what Haggai would call the panelling of our houses. Yet, Father, we, we ultimately look for the return of the Lord Jesus to this earth, and we want to be men and women who are involved in extending and advancing your kingdom and seeing your will done on this earth. 
God, will you help us to do that? Will you help us to respond to the true prophetic? Will you help us to respond when people speak your words to us that draw us on and encourage us and stir us? Father, will you help us to be men and women who are faithful to all that you've called us to, we pray. Amen.